0: That song, "Rock of Ages," Cleft, for me, I its a great song. It was written in a time of theological controversy. The guy that wrote it uh, was not there was a was not a fan of Char- of John Wesley. So that song was written in direct opposition to the Wesleyan movement, um, especially John Wesley and John Wesley's viewpoints on soteriology. Now, Augusta's top lady was the son of a very wealthy man. His father was an army officer. And uh, he died in 1778. John Gill and he were really good friends, although John Gill was much older. Um, this is interesting to me, then I'll give you my sermon. because <laughs> This is all free. This is just the, uh, what do they call it, the appetizer? <laughs> John Gill died in uh, 1773, five years before the uh, top lady did. John Gill and Top Lady were such good friends in spite of the fact that Gill was a Baptist and Top Lady was an ordained minister in the Church of England, the C of E. And nothing could be more, more different than high church Anglicanism and the particular Baptists of England. Very different viewpoints on, on, the, on worship. Now, But they were great friends. They found their fellowship in the gospel. And this is where I find a lot of fellowship with people, with other pastors, who don't share my same ecclesiastical view, my view of the church, but I share, we share the same view of the gospel. And so, but this is, this is an interesting anecdote from John Gill's life. When John Gill died, the family and others wanted Top Lady to preach the funeral, but they wouldn't allow him to do it. The church would not allow him to do it because Top Lady was not a Baptist. And so, it's it an interesting? Isn't that striking? Interesting anecdotes from uh, church history, all that fun stuff. All that fun stuff. Well, let's be dismissed in prayer. <laughs> Take your Bible, turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter five, and uh, you know I've noticed in the last weeks and months I've been preaching quite long. Have you guys noticed that? <laughs> and when I came here to. Uh, Michigan, my average sermon length was 35 minutes. But I did the averages recently, and I'm way up to like 48 minutes is my average length. And so I thought, why why am I doing that? And one time, one one reason I thought maybe is I'm only preaching once a week, and I'm used to preaching four times a week. Back in Oklahoma, preaching once a week here. I thought maybe that's the difference. And then I thought, well, is that really the difference? And then I realized what it was, is I'm preaching too long of a passage at one time trying to tackle eight or ten verses, a whole paragraph instead of just a verse or two, which makes the sermon go pretty long. Now, nobody's complained to me about how long the sermons go, except I just feel like I'm preaching too long, and uh, you guys kind of affirmed that <laughs> just a second ago when I asked you if you had noticed, and you all said, yeah, we noticed, but you've been so gracious about it, and I don't want to you know, presume on your, on your patience uh, forever, you know, so... I'm just going to preach from one and a half verses today. So look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. Now, before I read this, this is a sermon. It's basically, it's, it's basically going to be a sermon to Christians about Christian stuff. But I assume that anytime time we get together, there are always persons here who are not Christians at all. And you may say, well, I came here looking for something different than what you're going to talk about. But before I talk about the Christian stuff, I want to tell you what everybody needs to hear. I want to tell you the gospel. I want to walk you down a path. Now, here in Michigan, there's only basically one way to get to the UP. All roads lead through where? Mackinaw City. You've got to get on the big bridge. And you gotta go up there. I heard a youper say that God made the Mackinac Bridge so that trolls could go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're gonna get to Mackinac, if you're gonna get to the UP, you gotta go across the Mackinac Bridge. If you're gonna get into heaven, you gotta go through the only bridge into heaven. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way you're gonna get to heaven. Jesus Christ is your only access into heaven. There are no other entrances. There are entrances and bridges that are marked this way to heaven. But when you get fairly well committed to them, you find that those bridges are out. They're incomplete. They're the proverbial bridge to nowhere. Or you find out that they don't actually lead where you want them to go. They go somewhere else. Have you ever been on a a road and thought, I know this road's taking me here and find out that it takes you somewhere else? You know, yesterday we drove to Petoskey, and we went kind of the back way. We went down Mitchell Road, came in the back way down Mitchell Road, all the way down to those beautiful homes and down into downtown Petoskey. I wasn't, I, didn't, I wasn't expecting to come out there, but I was surprised where I came out. And luckily I knew where I was when I got there, so I just made a left. And so, but the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And, and there's only one true way to have salvation through Jesus Christ, and that's through faith alone. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there are none righteous, no, not one. Nobody has any righteousness of, of their own. If you could look in the heavenly mirror of God's word and see your true self, you will find not a beautiful, lovely person, but you'll find a person who is insidiously ugly, who is defiled with all the marks of sin, I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen that old movie about Dorian Gray. It has Montgomery Clift in it, you know. And he lives this life. And the photograph, the, photograph, the picture of him, bears all the marks of his sinful choices. And it's just, a, it's just a monstrosity of his true self. He looks wonderful on the outside, but on the inside, he's rotten to the core. And my friends, you on your own, you have no righteousness. I don't mean that you don't do good things or have good thoughts or have, good, have, have other, person, other people's goodwill in your heart. I don't mean that. I'm saying that when you measure yourself by God's infallible perfect standard, you come up short. As it is written, there are none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now you can be a wonderful person. You can be really good but you fall short because you are not able to keep that performance up. Now, I played basketball on Thursday because that's what all good Christian men do on Thursdays at 11 o'clock. If they're able, they play basketball, right? Now, Thursday, I played basketball particularly well. And Scott Hancock, who was there playing, he, whenever I play really well, Scott always says, Well, Terry, we know how you're going to be next Tuesday. <laughs> Next Tuesday, you're going to (laughs) stink. Because that's the way it goes. I get about one good day a week of basketball. But then then I can't keep it up. I can't be consistent. You guys ever had that problem being consistent? You can't do it. You could have a really good week. You could have a really good day. You could have a really good month. You could have a really good year where you keep it between the lines and you really live good and clean and do right and control your thoughts. And really the number of sins you commit are less than normal. But you can't keep that up forever. Nobody can. You fall short of the glory of God. In order to get into God's glorious presence, you have to be be completely and totally perfect. And you cannot keep it up. This is why Jesus Christ came into the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to be the Savior of sinners. 1 Timothy 4.10 says that Jesus is the Savior of the world, particularly or especially to those who believe. So he's the Savior of the world, but not all the world is saved because not all the world believes in Jesus as their Savior. Jesus Christ came into the world to die for, Romans 5, 6, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you are going to have the benefit of Christ's death, you have to come to grips with the fact that before God, you are ungodly, you are unrighteous, that you deserve... To be punished for your sins. Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinful people. He laid down his life on the cross. And on the cross, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Jesus died on the cross. Upon him was laid the collective guilt of every person who would ever believe the gospel. And he died there. And then he took that sin load, you might say. And he bore it into the heart of the earth. Now, I don't know if Jesus went into hell and burned. Some people say he did. I don't know if he did or not. I used to say absolutely not. Jesus did not suffer that way. But now I'm not quite, I'm not so sure what to think about that anymore. But I, I'm going to say this to you is that whatever, was re- whatever price was required to pay for your sins, Jesus paid the complete full price. So that, in the words of Augustus Top Lady, Nothing in my hand I bring; simply to Thy cross I cling. We bring nothing to Him to exchange for our salvation, other than our own sins. Whatever price was paid, Jesus paid the full price for sin. I know Jesus paid the full price for sin, and you don't have to do anything to pay for your sins because Jesus rose from the dead, raised again because of our justification. 1 Corinthians says, and Romans four twenty five says. Raised from the dead, and every person who puts their faith in Christ, believing that he was the Son of God and that he rose from the dead, if you believe that he died for you, all your sins are forgiven. And you can go to heaven when you die. It seems ridiculously simple, but people don't want to do it. Our church's confession of faith says it like this. The, the only thing that stands between you and faith in Christ as your Savior is your own love of sin. <laughs> People love their sins. They love them. And they'll love them right off into eternal torment and punishment. But Jesus Christ came to save sinners. If you're here today and you've come to know you have no righteousness of your own, and if you will call upon Christ... To save you and forgive you, he will save you. Romans 10, 13 says it. Call upon him. Call upon him and he will save you. Now, let's talk about the word believe for about 30 minutes, okay? I'm trying to preach short. (laughs) The word believe means to entrust oneself to. Entrusting oneself to. So, when I got married, Valerie's dad walked her down the aisle and he transferred her hand to mine. And he, they said, who giveth this woman? And he said, her mother and I. And I received her as my wife. And, and really, I think that's when we really got married. We didn't have to make any promises to each other. I mean, the transfer was done. You know, we we're married. She's been given to me. He entrusted her to me. And really, her mom and dad, they never interfered in our married life, Period. Never, never did. You know, they're great people. In-laws who mind their own business is a blessing, isn't it? (laughs) Isn't that right? Sure it is. Sure it is. So, he entrusted her to me. That's one example. When you get in the car, now now all my driving kids are on vacation or gone or at college. They They all went on little trips to... You know, because it's so hard being a teenager, they got to go relax. <laughs> 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 they all went on these little, these little, you know, vacations. So all these driving children, though, at some point I, have to, I had to entrust myself to them to drive the car. Because my car is not like the driver's egg car. I don't have a brake. I wish I had a brake. I've prayed that I had a break, and I've pressed the imaginary break lots of times. You have to entrust yourself to to them to drive you. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are entrusting yourself to him. You're entrusting him to have actually paid for all your sins. You're entrusting him to vouch for you into eternity, into God's presence. You're trusting in Him. You're entrusting yourself to Him. If you don't entrust yourself to Jesus, you are not going to have the forgiveness of your sins. You have to do it, and you have to do it on purpose. It has to be something intentional, something that you do with purpose. I'm going to do this. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. Now, if you've never done that, I, I implore you, in the words of the Apostle Paul, I pray you, I supplicate you, I ask you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Lean on Him and He will save you. Lean anywhere else and you won't be saved. Lean on Christ. Now let me talk to you Christians. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. This is what the Bible says. Paul is giving his final instructions... To the church at Thessalonica. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. In the apostles' final exhortations, he tells this young church something about their attitude toward their ministers, toward their pastors towards the leaders of their congregation. He says, this is the way you should be treating them. Now, I haven't always been a pastor. I've been a member of several churches before I was ever a pastor of a church. And so I know that we don't all, we're not always happy with our pastors, right? Right? You can't always be happy with your pastor. It's impossible. If your pastor is a human being... You can't always be happy, you know, because sometimes they preach too long, right? And sometimes they preach too short. Sometimes sometimes they preach too loud. Sometimes they tell bad jokes. Sometimes they just run their mouth recklessly and have to pay for it at home. (laughs) It's impossible to be happy with your pastor all the time. And the Apostle Paul here, he says to the Thessalonians, I want you guys to respect those who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you or are teaching you. I want you to respect them. The reason why he says this is because they're not respecting him. Now, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't address any reasons why they might be upset with their pastor. He doesn't say, well, you know, I understand your pastor is this or that. He just tells them to respect the pastor because Paul knows how people are. He knows how pastors are. He knows how people are. People get their noses out of joint. Pastors do it. Church members do it. It happens. It happens. I mean, I, I was a, when i you know, I'm not going to tell that story. So, in general, I want you to remember this kind of maxim about pastors. In general, pastors are good people, and they seek the best for their people. In general, the majority of Christian ministers are decent people. They love their congregations and they're trying to do the best they can. The best they can in general. Does that mean that all pastors are good guys? That are not some bad ones? No, there are some bad ones. Just like you have police officers. There are some police officers who may not be the snappiest. But the majority of them are wonderful. Same way with politicians. Not all politicians are crooks. (laughs) There are some wonderful people involved in politics. Not all referees are blind in one eye and can't see out of the other. Some of them are are good, some of them are, are bad. If you want to have some fun, go on YouTube and type in the name Angel Hernandez. And you can read about him and his, his, his history of officiating Major League Baseball games. They're not all like that, right? So, in general, pastors are trustworthy. You have to remember this. And sometimes pastors are misunderstood by congregations, right? So, let's look what the Apostle Paul says here. The first thing he says to them, he says, I urge you... We ask you, brothers, to respect it. He uses the word ask here. The NIVA, I think, has the word urge. He is asking them, not commanding them. And I think this is a, this is ta- a, tactful, a tactful way of doing this, is if I tell you to do something, your response to it, if I command you in the imperative, it's not usually the best way to lead stuff. A lot of times we ask questions. You know, hey, would you do this? Would you take care of this? Uh, a request gets more mileage than a command, doesn't it? Sure it does. Sometimes you do have to command, but a lot of times you say, even though you have the authority, you have the position, you ask. You know, would you do this for me? And people respond better to a request. And the apostle requests, I'm asking you brothers to do this. He's asking them to respect those who labor among them. Now, If you're looking for an outline, here's point number one the pastor's work. The work of a pastor is something that should be respected. The work of a pastor is to pray, study, preach, and teach, to mediate, and give advice to the churches and people that they serve. That is the work of a pastor. A lot of this is preparatory stuff where a pastor behind the scenes is studying and praying and learning about God's Word, learning about the proper application of God's Word, thinking about how you apply God's Word in different times in history, different uh, contexts and localities. A pastor's work is partly private, but then there's this other part of his work that is public, which is what you are a part of right now. It's through preaching and teaching. And I hope, you know, my ambition is that as a pastor, I am able to not only preach to you, but to teach you so that you'll know God's word and therefore know God more perfectly. That's that's the ambition. And I think that's the ambition of every actual God-called and heaven-sent pastor, is to have this attitude, the pastor's work. Now, this work of the pastor is for your benefit. Now, in the NIV, it says here that their pastors are, that, they're, that they care for you in the Lord. The English Standard Version, Authorized Version, uh, NAS, CSB probably. I've never, I don't own one of those, so I don't ever check it. It says that they say over you instead of care for you. And when you read the NIV, you may read care for them. That's a different tone than over you. But the Greek word translated either way is the same, the same Greek word. And it means to exercise leadership, to show concern for, or to rule over. This idea of a pastor being over his congregation says that he has a certain measure of authority over the congregation. Now, there's a big argument about how far that authority extends. Well, I'll say this to you. Depending on the pastor, that's going to depend on how much you want him involved in your life. I've had some pastors who I don't want them to know anything more about me than they have to know, you know? And the, kind of the basic rule of thumb is, you know, the pastor's authority, I'm not going to say that either. There are pastors who, take, who, try to, who try to dominate people too much, right? And that's true in every, in every kind of authoritative context. There's always somebody who goes too far. And then there are those who don't go far enough. If anything, I think I fall into that latter category is that I just tend to let people do as they want to do instead of speaking up. Because sometimes I'm not sure if I should speak up. But, there, but just I'm just trying to tell you that there is an authority, an oversight that the pastor has in his church. Now, let's kind of narrow this down a bit. Is that um, in a church like ours, the membership, the actual members of the church, the congregation, is a known group of people. We have a list of members. It's about 70 people who are the actual members of the church so that when we have a vote, those people get to vote. And then we have a fair number of people who come here who are not members. So we have church meetings. They don't vote. And to be honest with you, so far we've had all kinds of meetings and voted on all kinds of things. We don't tell people who are not members they can't come to the meetings. We allow them to be in the meetings. And if they, if they vote by voice, that kind of thing, we don't really get too worked up about it. Because the consensus of the people is usually pretty clear. So there, there is a an authority the pastor has over people who are members of the church in particular. And that's kind of how I work it through in my mind. Is if you are a member of the church, if you are, if you're, if your name's on the line, if you're signed up, registered, you know, and we got your DNA sample. <laughs> My oversight of you has to be a little more narrow than my oversight over somebody who's not a member. Right? It's like spanking somebody else's kid. Right? Spank your own kid. But don't think about spanking mine. Right? This is how pastors have some oversight. Now, this has been fleshed out in church history in all kinds of different ways about how you know who the members of a church are, etc. But I'm saying that there is an oversight that pastors have of their churches. Now, because we're Americans, there's nothing we hate more than oversight. Deregulate, deregulate, deregulate everything. We don't want any kind of oversights. But there is this, this, is this, in Scripture that pastors are over their congregations for their benefit, for their benefit. Now, the word overseer is used in 1 Timothy. It's used to refer to pastors. In the authorized version, it's, trans, it's translated as bishop. In the ESV, it's overseer. That's, a, an, that's a, a superintendency kind of a position. And then the word shepherd is used for pastors in 1 Peter, that they watch over the congregation, they watch over the flock of God. And then in Tim, Titus and Timothy, the word elder is also used to refer to pastors, which refers to the kind of paternal attitude and oversight that a pastor has over his congregation where he's like a father to them now to me that's the most striking illustration because i am a father and i know that with my children you have to work you have to behave towards them in a certain kind of way as a father you don't always get instantaneous compliance do you well, you can, get, you can get instantaneous compliance till you know, six, seven, eight years old. But when they get to be, you know, young adults, they start to want to know why. And you have to work differently with them. You're reasoning with them. You may put up with them making bad decisions so they can make mistakes, so they can hit the wall and learn from their, the consequences of their actions. The pastor, Paul says, he has this oversight. He says, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. So the labor is private, and there's this public aspect to it. Now, the second point is the pastor's worth. The pastor's worth. A pastor of a church is a gift from the Holy Spirit to the church. Now, you may not be aware of your own personal spirit, spiritual gift. You may not know what your own personal spiritual gift, but if you have a pastor, you can be assured that, that is a spiritual gift to you from the Holy Spirit. A pastor is a gift. Now, I've only been the member of one church where our pastor resigned, and we had to get a new one. I was the assistant pastor, and the pastor resigned. And when, the pa- when you don't have a pastor, sometimes weird stuff happens. So the first Sunday that we didn't have a pastor at Hot Springs Baptist Temple, he resigned. He moved to Florida. Arkansas to Florida, why bother? <laughs> humidity, humidity. <laughs> I mean, the first Sunday we had, and I was involved in it, we had a knuckle-up situation in the church lobby. No, no punches were thrown Only because cooler heads prevailed. It just, that Sunday, everything just went to hell in a handbasket. The Sunday before, everything was great. Pastors there, kind of a sense of calm over the congregation. The next Sunday, no pastor there. It was like the book of Judges. (laughs) It was, it was wow. And then. I was going to stay there with the church through this, through, this, through this interim process, you know, to get a new pastor. But that night, we had a men's meeting, and I resigned, and we left the church. <laughs> because I said, if this is how it is without a pastor, <laughs> I don't want to get killed, you know. When churches don't have pastors, it's a time of uncertainty. What's going to happen? Who's going to be there? Who's going to fill the role? Searching for a pastor is such a pain in the neck, isn't it? It's difficult. You got to winnow through resumes and applications and ask questions and pray together and argue about what we really need versus what we really need, you know, and just all these it's it's a it's a tumultuous time in a church when there is no pastor there. So if you have a pastor in your fellowship, you can say for sure that's a gift from the Holy Spirit because Acts chapter not Acts chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4 says so. That Jesus Christ, he gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. He's given these to the church. Now, the work of the pastor is an essential kind of work. Some people think that it doesn't matter if you have a pastor or not at your church. They say, "We we don't need a pastor. We got ourselves. We don't really need anything else. But God's word actually says the opposite. If you are going to become the Christian that you ought to be, you need two things. You need a church, and you need a pastor. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read it to you right out of the the good book. No, we don't think I'm just trying to, uh, you know, have job security. Although, hopefully this helps. (laughs) Ephesians 4.11. He, and he gave the apostles, sorry about Christ, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And here's the instance where the ESV translates "poimain" as shepherd instead of pastor. To equip, here's the purpose for these gifts. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, in, who, who is the head? Oh, my eyes are messing with me. Who is the head into Christ? From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You need a pastor to help you reach spiritual maturity. And I'm going to prove that to you. There is, if you've got a Bible, you know, say amen. If you're reading a phone, you also have a Bible. Or an iPad. But if you got God's Word, would you you hold it up if it's on a phone or iPad? If you're able to hold it up, just put it up. All right? You can put it down. The only reason you have that book in your hand is because of the work of Christian pastors down through the ages. It's been Christian ministers and pastors who have translated God's Word from the original languages into languages that you can understand and read. It's been the burden of Christian ministers to get God's word into the vulgar tongues, they call them. The common languages of the people. Now, without a Bible, how much are you going to know about God and the way God works? Not too much. But Christian ministers and their work has brought God's word down to you so you could have it and understand it. So it's not just me saying that you need someone like me to help you. Because even I here now, I can only do what I do because of the work of Christian ministers who've come before me to teach me and guide me. And I've had wonderful pastors, and I've had pastors who are a little bit, not too great. But each one of them contributed to my growth as a Christian, either by showing me the right way to believe or the wrong way to believe. They've all contributed to my growth as a Christian, Pastors are important. Their worth is important. They are gifts from the Holy Spirit. So churches need pastors, and the opposite is true as well, is that pastors need churches, and in this syncretism, not syncretism, wrong word, synergism, working together, we all benefit together. Churches need pastors, pastors need churches, and churches particularly need pastors who really actually believe God's word. A church does not need a pastor who is not committed to the authority of Scripture. You need a pastor who believes God's word is absolutely true. That it is the infallible inspired word of the living God. You need somebody that believes that. Someone who believes the gospel and preaches it faithfully and truthfully and clearly. You need a good pastor. The apostle says we should regard these persons in love not because they are lovely or because they are charming or because they preach short (laughs) but esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because their work is important. The pastor breaks off the bits. If this is a big loaf of bread, or a big steak, the pastor cuts it down into bite-sized bits and sets it on your plate as you go by. For some people, the pastor cuts off the bits you know, and gives it to them right in the mouth. Because some people are, are baby Christians. And that's not a knock against you who are a new Christian. It's just, it's just a way of understanding your spiritual development. You're a, a babe in Christ. You're a little, a little spotted fawn. Have you seen all the spotted fawns this year out there? Here's a little baby deer, and you've got to be watched over by somebody. The pastor does this work feeding the congregation. Their work is important. Their work is valuable to you because you need it. Pastors are oftentimes valued because of personality or eloquence, but they should be valued because of the quality of the work that they do of giving to you God's Word, teaching to you, What the word of the Lord says, helping you to understand God's word more perfectly, more carefully, more accurately in some cases. Love pastors because of the work that they do, even if the pastor himself is not easy to love. Now this takes, have you ladies ever looked at some other lady's husband and thought, how does she stay with that? It's because, while you cannot understand why she would put up with him, she is able to see, look past his gruffness, look past his itchy whiskers, look past his inside-out socks that are in the laundry. Does she have to turn right-side-out later? Look past these things and see something noble, something lovely. About that, like my, my grandpa Jim Basham, I mean, that guy, he was incorrigible. Incorrigible. But my grandma, she loved him right down to the ground. She she was one time I was mad I was mad at my grandpa and I said something snappy about Paul to her, and I got the right and left hand of Betty. Don't talk about it in that way. I'm like, yeah, but you're mad at him. Well, I got, you know, <laughs> there's a rule for you and a rule for me, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Sometimes pastors can be difficult to love. We have to, we, have to, we, have to, we have to admit these things. No pastors are perfect, they can be hard to love, they can be hard to understand. But we kind of work from this principle that if they are teaching us God's word, they're trying to help us. Now, not all pastors are as well-educated or gifted in communicating and teaching God's God's Word as others. But if their overall intention is to get you to be a better Christian, to get you to love Jesus more, to help you have more confidence in the gospel, then this is a pastor who can be valued and respected. Respected. Now, If a pastor doesn't do those things, well, if you can't respect your pastor, I'll say this to you. I hate to say this to you, but you know, when in doubt, quote a John, right? Either John Gill or John MacArthur, one of the Johns. We never quote John Everett. <laughs> <laughs> Quote of John. MacArthur says that you should be incredibly patient and long-suffering with your pastor because pastors are changing too. Pastors are maturing, learning, they're being sharpened. They are changing too. So if I came here to be your pastor when I was 20, I'm sure that probably just the first two rows would be here because that Terry Basham was a, was a very different person. What's made the difference? The ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in me? The ongoing work of the Word of God in me making me better than I was? I was talking to one of my older children one time and they, were, they were, kept bringing up something from the past quite a, quite a ways back. And I said, now look, You have to admit on some level that I'm not the same father now that I was then. You have to admit that I have made some improvement. And they knew I had him over a barrel. So they begrudgingly said, yeah, a little bit. (laughs) So pastors, they change. Now the pastors that work do is important. Here's some references for you to write down if you want to check these things out. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, which we just read. Acts chapter 18, verse 11. You can look at Acts 19. You can look at Matthew 28, the last part. 1 Timothy 1 and Titus chapter 2, where in all these passages, it's all about the teaching ministry of the pastor, teaching God's word to God's people to help them. Now, the third thing, if you're looking for the points here, is the pastor's watch. The pastor's watch. It says, past, It says, look at these words, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Now, this is interesting. It's over you in the Lord. So that, that kind of puts a limitation on pastoral authority, doesn't it? In the Lord. Not over every part of your life. You know, I went to a, I went to a church one time where people would go see the pastor and ask him if they should switch from MCI to at and I was talking to a person. He said, you know, I'm thinking about switching long-distance plans, and I need to go talk to the pastor and see what he thinks. And I was like, I said, which one's cheaper? <laughs> well, MCI is cheaper. I said, well, that, to me, it's obvious. And he's like, i, like, I got to go talk to the preacher. you know, see what he thinks about it. I'm like, one person told me they were, they were buying it. This is all the same church. They were buying a house. And they said, you know, I'm, he said, I don't want to buy the house or make an offer until I get the pastor to come over and look at it. The pastor of that church, he was not an engineer. He was not a house inspector. If you ask him to change the battery in your car, he might change the tire. I mean, he didn't know beans from buttermilk about that kind of stuff. But these people were just so into that control. we got to have all this priestly oversight, you might say. So what does it mean, over the churches? Pastors have oversight of the churches. They have a superintendent. They, they have a charge, they have a care for them. It's here in 1 Thessalonians, it's also in 1 Corinthians 16, 16, it's in Hebrews 13, 17. It's in 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, it's in 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 13. All these pastors are talking about this oversight, this executive oversight that the pastor has over, over a church. Now, pastors are indeed overseers or superintendents of their churches. Because they are shepherds of the Lord's sheep. They are entrusted with something very precious. My friends, Jesus Christ laid down His life for the church, for the individuals, for the people. He saved them. And then He entrusts them to under-shepherds. He's the chief shepherd. And He's entrusted churches to under-shepherds to watch over them and care for them. And in this position, if you use this analogy, you have pastor... Sort of elevated congregation below them, only in vantage point, because the pastor is able to see from his vantage point things that other people can't see. Now there are some things you're going to hear I'll, I'll yak about, and you'll think that doesn't seem like a big deal to me. Have you ever been at your job and your boss was on about something that you thought was just silly? Why are they worrying about that? It's because they have a vantage point you don't have. And they they can see problems and difficulties that you can't see because of, of their responsibility. Pastors usually see things that other people don't. They become concerned with things that often seem unnecessary but are actually very necessary. Because they know that the sheep, they can be torn by the wolves. They know that the great deceiver, the devil is out there trying to lure you into sin. And my friends, I remind you, the wages of sin is death. If you are doing sins, if you are sinning against God, you are doing yourself harm. Harm. The wages of sin is death. The pleasures of sin endure for a season. Just for a season. Right? You guys still with me? Because I'm, I'm I'm almost a normal to the average, the new one, not the old one. <laughs> what I am really close to being done. Now, the reason why Paul tells the church that doesn't like it to respect their pastors is because they weren't doing it. You say, well, what was the main way they weren't doing it? I think you actually see that in in chapter five, in verses in verse twenty and twenty one where it says, despise not prophesying, which is connected to preaching, foretelling, foretelling God's word, giving a message from heaven, is that they weren't listening to their pastors. And that's probably the main pain that pastors face. They feel the most disrespected by their congregations when the congregation doesn't listen to them. That doesn't mean that pastors think they're always right. But if you're communicating God's word to people, We know God's word is right, correct? And so you should listen to your pastors. Now, sometimes people don't don't want to listen to their pastors. Same reason, you don't want want to listen to your parents. Because you know what they're going to say, right? (laughs) I'm going to ask my, you have to ask your mom or dad some questions because you know what they're going to say. Sometimes we presume, sometimes we're not accurate, but you kind of know. So Paul says, respect them who are over you and who admonish you. Now, that word admonish you is a great word. It's the gentle pleading. It's the beggings, Admonishing. So when your kid gets their driver's license, they turn 16, they're going to take their first maiden voyage out onto the big highway. What do you say? What do you say? First thing you say, be careful. Do what with the seatbelt? Buckle up. Don't, sp- don't. Sp- What's the, what am I saying? Speed. Don't speed. Don't, don't text. Don't take selfies while driving. And we have all these lists of things that you, you tell them because you care for them. You care for them, and you admonish them. Right? You plead with them. Don't do this. Be very careful out there. This is the work of pastors we should, well, we should give thanks for the pastors pastors we've had in our life. Amen? Because pastors aren't permanent. They come and they go. And blessed be the name of the Lord. They come and they go. Thank God for the ones we have had who are wonderful. Thank God for the ones we had who were mediocre. Because they showed us how good we had it. (laughs) And thank God for those who we have. You know, we should begin to pray for the coming generations to have pastors. Because the average age of pastors is only going up. Only going up. And if you're here, I want you guys to know that the Lord can still call, He still calls people to be pastors. And if He calls you to be a pastor, there's nothing more noble than being a pastor. There's nothing more glorious than being a herald of the truth. And I recommend it to you with all my heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience of this congregation. Lord, as I look back across my life, I give thanks to you for the pastors who have invested in me and cared for me and loved me and taught me God's word. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up many pastors across the land who believe the word of God is true and hold it in the highest esteem. Lord, we pray for churches in our area. They don't have pastors or they're they're looking for pastors to give them give them the leadership of the Holy Spirit to know who they should have, Lord, to connect them with them, Father. Now Lord, we, we ask these things in Jesus' precious and glorious name. Amen.